And right now we're at the section of church. You should know the church. If you are a believer, you should know and understand the church. Because if you're a believer, you're part of that wonderful congregation. Um, And then the second half of our study is fruit. Because every good tree that's planted by the living waters bears fruit. And fruit's what you see. So if you are rooted into these things, the second question is that we've been going through is what, what do we see? What evidences should we see in each other's lives that support that we're rooted? Turn to Philippians 1.1 real quick. Just going to kind of use this short verse. Go ahead and put your finger there. We've been talking about the church for the past several weeks now. Um, Three things that the church is. Somebody just name one of them. A body. Okay? If the church is a body, Jesus is the head, and He works through the central nervous system of the Holy Spirit, and He makes His body move across this earth. So that when Jesus said, Lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age, he meant it. He is is moving and working through his people. He is the head, we are the body. What else? The bride. If, If the church and Christ is in a marriage relationship, Jesus is the husband who buys for himself a precious bride, and he buys the church, his, his love. And he pays, as we'll see tonight, he pays a very costly price for her because he loves her. He is the husband, and the church is the bride. And what is the essence of marriage? Oneness. Okay? What's the third thing? Building. Building. Okay? If the church stands for building, Matt, what is Jesus? He is the chief cornerstone. He's the keystone. And everything is formed off of that perfectly shaped stone that God placed on this earth. And not a dead stone, a living stone. Remember the builders we looked at in 1 Peter? The builders rejected it. And God took that stone He picked it up, and he set it down, and it grew into the house of God. Not one stone, but many living stones, like you said. And the stones weren't just stones. The stones were people. And the people weren't just people. The people were priests. And the priests weren't just stuck in the wall. They were serving sacrifices in the temple that they were part of. And what are the sacrifices? Anybody remember? What's Romans 12? What's it say? Yeah, they were serving. Therefore, beseech you, brothers, in the view of the mercies of God, that you present yourselves as living sacrifices. That's quite a picture. And we are going to take that that building tonight, and we're going to look at that building. And the, the, the household, it's called the household of God. That's what God's house looks like. The household of God. It's made of people. It's built on His Son. 
as the keystone, and it's the place for a Christian to grow strong and straight. Who has Philippians 1.1? Do you have it, Nate? Yeah. Could you read it for me? That's it. Read it one more time, and I'd like you to listen to all the people in that one verse. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Jesus Christ who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Okay. Who are the people in that verse? Thank you, Matt. Who are they? Jesus. One. Jesus. Who else? Paul. Saints. Two. Who else? Paul and Timothy. <laughs> You're right. Paul and Timothy. Bishops and one other. Deacons. And what Paul is doing is he's writing a letter. Paul the Apostle writes a letter to this church and he addresses the whole church. He addresses the leadership. He addresses the people. And in that we find that there is there's leadership in the church and some people stray away from this word called government, church government, church leadership. How does that word make you feel? Church leadership. You know, we've done a lot of wrong things with church leadership. There's, um, back east, there was these guys who wanted to be tax-free, so they called themselves a church so that they could be tax-deductible. And then every Sunday morning, they went out on their boat, their tax-free boat, which was their church, and they would fish together as the church. That's one view, one um, far-out view. What else have we done with the church? We've, he mentioned the word bishops. Andy, who's the bishop of our church? You don't, have to, you don't have to answer right now. <laughs> We're going to find out tonight. We've mixed the terms up. We've added terms. So we're going to look this evening at what does church leadership look like? Um, it amazes me. E.M. Bounds says the church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. We like methods. We like religion, ceremony, uh, mathematical equations to get us from here to holiness. And God chose to use men. This is a quote from a good book called, uh, from Robert E. Coleman called The Master Plan of Evangelism. It goes like this. Men were his method. It all started by Jesus calling a few men to follow him. This revealed immediately the direction and strategy he would take. His concern was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men from the multitudes would follow. Remarkable as it may seem, Jesus started to gather these men before he ever organized an evangelistic campaign, or he even preached a sermon, or even a sermon in public. Men were to be his method of winning the world to God. And we look for better methods, but God is looking for the right men the right folks who bear his image, who have that character. 
seems like God could have used so many other things that would have been easier. But he chose men. Um, go to Acts 20, 28. We're going to work our way through some scriptures here regarding the church. The first thing, if we're going to understand church leadership, church headship, is to understand this. Acts 20, 28. Okay, are you ready? Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd. What's that next phrase say? Say it out loud. The church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. If we're going to start with leadership, there's one thing that I want you to, to understand and to know. The church belongs to no man and no group of men. It is owned by God. It's God's church. He purchased it. First Peter says that he purchased it with precious blood. Like if you understood the, um, let, me, let me tell you about Jewish traditional weddings. If Dusty wanted a wife, what Dusty would do is, yeah, Dusty, he would go to a, to a young lady's father and he would say, I'm interested in your wife. <laughs> And the guy would say, get lost. (laughs) Oh, man. I love it when I say something and I'm dead serious and I'm dead wrong. (laughs) Dusty would go, I'm interested in your daughter. And then they would have this meeting. And what the meeting was over would be the price, the dowry price. And and to the girls, you're kind of like, really? You're going to buy what? You're going to buy me? No, that's not the point at all. You see, the daughter, his daughter was precious. In fact, she is so precious that I would like for you to purchase the right for you to have her as your wife. And you say, how much was the dowry? It was about equivalent to a, like a house because the bride was precious. It's not something that he would just give away his daughter. No, the bride was precious. And God purchased this bride with a high cost of his son. Peter says, precious blood. There's no other high price you could pay because there is nobody greater value. And there's no greater value. There's no greater cost. The church, his bride was purchased at the highest price possible. The second thing that's obvious, the church is God's, and the second thing is it does not belong to me. This is not Andy's ministry. This is not Tanner's ministry. I love the fact that in God's sovereignty, this group, uh, the, the church here, hired Tanner and Andy the same day, and we sit at the same office, at the same desk, and we work together. You know, that, that, I would not have done that. I would have just 
picked one guy. I mean, it's a lot easier on the budget, right? But the Lord didn't do that. The Lord chose for us to work together. And one, it's very sanctifying because both of us have directions, directions that we need to talk about. I can't just do my own thing and Tanner can't just do his own thing. But we talk, to, talk about these things, so it's sanctifying. Two, it's a good example for you that ministry is not about one guy. If you, want to, if you want to get a really odd look from Pastor Brian, and if you want to insult Pastor Brian, this is what you do. Go up to him and say, and ask him about his church. And you'll get a very funny look, because he, he despises that. Because this is not any man's church. First and foremost, it's God's church. He bought it. At the very best, we are caretakers. We are shepherds. But it is not, the church is not owned or run by a man. Okay? That's the first thing I want us to look at this evening, is that it's God's church. Let's go to Ephesians 2.20. 2, uh, 2.19. Ephesians 2.19. Luke, could you come up here? Luke Kleinsaucer. You want to stand or sit? You're kind of tall. Why don't you sit? <laughs> um, what are you going to school for? Mechanical engineering. Okay. What, um, what do you do for a living? I uh, work construction. We build houses and pour foundations and frame and roof and side. How long have you been a, uh, working in construction? Uh, I don't know, 15 years at least. Okay. So Luke's probably more qualified to answer these questions than I am because he's been building a lot longer. You've built, how many houses do you think you've helped build? Three? No, more than that. Five. <laughs> Seven. Maybe uh, ten. Let's go with ten. Okay. And other, amongst other buildings, too. Right, like chicken houses, <laughs> outhouses, dog houses. Dog, right. <laughs> Okay, what is, in a building, what is the most essential part of the entire building? Like, if you were going to put your money into one place in the building, where will it go? Before you answer that, we spent one time. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I won't go there. Go ahead. Uh, the foundation, whatever you build, everything else on top of. The concrete is what we would say in our day, I guess. Okay. The cornerstone in old, well, in biblical times. Okay. What happens? Have you ever have you ever been in a house where the foundation was off, and you had to work with it? Yes. Even uh, if we poured it ourselves, or when uh, you make a mistake and it doesn't line up with everything else, you have to put so much more work into making everything else work because. At, uh, I guess there's costs to redoing uh, work, and so you try to make it work, but it takes a lot more time to do it. Or you have, Actually, sometimes I've uh, seen a wall cut out because it was poured in the wrong spot that didn't line up with everything else. So, like, if, you, if your foundation is off, what's the next step in a, in a house? 
uh, most of the time you have to try to get back to level. You have to try to uh, plumb or level okay. or make an, go back to the first spot that you said, okay, this is where I wanted it to be. And if, um, go back off of that corner at that point. So if, um, if you're, like off your foundation, next thing is the framing? Yes. And does, does that affect, like is the foundation, does that affect the framing? Yes. Okay. Hold on. After the framing, what's next? Uh, so, or, uh, sheeting. Okay. Windows, doors. Can you tell if your siding is, if your foundation is off by that? Like putting a door in, can you tell if your foundation's off? Uh, well, by that time, yes. In a way, because your floor might not be level and you have to shim one side of the jam. Okay, so you gotta work it. But many times you can make it up in the, when you're putting the studs. Okay. Okay, so then you put your sheathing on, and then, well, then what do you put on? Uh, wire and plumbing. I guess that wouldn't matter mm -hmm. if the foundation was off, would it? No. I didn't think so. <laughs> what happens over time if a, if a foundation shifts or it becomes unplumb? You Is that a word? Um, I don't know. Unlevel. Unlevel. <laughs> a word. But, um, I know you get cracks in the wall and your doors start to sag, your windows crack. Um, you have to reset doors. Uh, if it's masonry, you get cracks in your brick or your stone. Okay. Could you read for me um, 19, the whole way down to 22? I'll be right back. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in that verse, what is the most important part of that whole verse? If that of the God's household? Jesus Christ. And he's called what? The built on the foundation. Chief cornerstone. I think you mentioned a keystone too. Didn't you talk about a keystone? Like the in older times they used a keystone? Um, no. No. <laughs> I made that up. Thank you, Luke. I wanted to get a builder's and his perspective on building, because, like, I don't know that much about building. Um, thank you, Luke. Jesus Christ is called the cornerstone. Some, people, some people's version may say the keystone. This stone, the builders had to make perfect. If this stone was off, the whole building's off. Um, Rick, could you get for me, uh, let's see, Isaiah 28. Could you go there? So when it comes to the, the household of God, when it comes to the church, it starts with Jesus. It's bought with His blood. It's owned with his, by what He did. And He is the most important and precious part in it. Go ahead and read... Um, Right on down through there. Did I tell you where? No. Nope. I'm sorry. Let me look at my notes. Uh, Isaiah 28:16 and 17. Therefore, 
that's okay. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, <laughs> Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tired stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Also, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the water will overflow the hiding place. Okay. I love how God lays it out in Isaiah. And he says, I will make justice the line, the measuring line, and righteousness the plummet. It's perfectly square. And if it's not square, this building does not have integrity. But Jesus was found perfectly holy. He's the perfect cornerstone. And we lay that down first. Then we're going to keep moving on. And it said um, in Ephesians 2, it says the chief um, 2.20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets have a key part in this building. Now, this is the cornerstone, and it's part of the foundation that Luke talked about. Okay? I wanted to, to go to, uh, I want to look at what this means a little bit. Go to Matthew 16, 18. One of the things that we talk about when it comes to Christ's church, which he owns, Christ's church, which he loves, that he is the key part, is we use this verse, we throw this verse around a lot in Matthew 16, 18, and it's, um, I'll read the whole thing for context. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, and then we will just use this, this, this part, Christ says, I will build my church. And I want to look at this section here and connect it back to Ephesians. Just to give you the context of this passage here, this is um, where Jesus is talking to Peter, and he says, Peter, do, who do men say that I am? Peter names off some people, and then he says, Peter, who do, who do you say that I am? In verse 13b, who do men say that I am? 14, so they said, some say John. The Baptists, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is a huge statement. He's bigger than the prophets. Jesus didn't just come to tell us a, a word from God. He came as God. He came as the Redeemer. He came as the long-expected one from Genesis chapter 3, the whole way to 12 to 15, the whole way to 22, where we see that God will provide a lamb, and it keeps on going, and Peter gets it. He says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus looks at him, and he says, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon. Bar Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Peter, you got it. You get it. God gave this to you. And then he says, but my father who is in heaven, and I say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. 
Jesus says, Peter, no, he says, Simon, you are Petras. Petra, you are Peter. You're a rock. That word Petra, um, let me look at my notes here. That word um, Petra, Petras, is one rock. Not necessarily even a big rock. And then he follows that up and he says, Peter, you're a rock. You are one rock. And on this Petras, I will build my church. Hey guys, they're two different rocks. Petra is one rock. Petra is, is no, let me clear, clarify, I'm sorry. Petras is one rock. Petra means bedrock. It's the, it's the rock that mountain chains are formed on and set upon. When he said, I will build my church on this rock, he wasn't referring to one rock. He was referring to a bedrock, a foundation. Okay? What foundation? The foundation that Peter got. Who do, who do you say that I am, Peter? You're God. You're Messiah. That's right, Peter. And you're going to be a rock. And on that rock that you just confessed, that bedrock, I'm going to build a church. Now go back to Ephesians 2. Having been built on the foundation, that bedrock of one rock? No. Of Many rocks, that foundation, um, who being built in the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, and Jesus, and Jesus Christ, him being the chief cornerstone. Rick, could you help me grab the apostles? I want to build for you a visual. I, I wrote this down on my chalkboard, and I want you to be able to see what this looks like. So you know, give me three apostles over here. I'll get them for you if you can get me some more. Yeah, all the apostles. There's fine, thank you. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Perfect. Okay. Ephesians 2.20, having been built in the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Do you know what God just did here? He just confirmed all of his word. One, the prophets. Well, that's the whole Old Testament the whole way from Genesis, the whole way up till Matthew. The words of Jesus being built on the chief cornerstone and the apostles. And I want you to consider for a little, for just for a minute here, these apostles. What did the, what did the apostles and the, and the prophets teach? Go to 2 Peter. Peter himself says this. Go to 2 Peter um, 2. 
verse 16. I'm sorry. I think that's the wrong one. First Peter 2. <laughs> I read that and I was like, that's not right. <laughs> Let's start with... Um... Okay. Because it is written, behold... Man, I'm sorry, guys. Okay, here we go. First Peter 1, 15. And then we'll start with 16. First Peter 1, chapter 1, verse 16. This is what the Apostle Peter says. This is what the apostles, um, what he's speaking for the apostles. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and cunning of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He starts out by saying, guys, this wasn't something that we dreamed up on our own. It's what we saw. For he received glory from God, the Father, honor, when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. 2 Peter 1, 19. I'm so sorry. I'll, I'll wait a second if you guys need to get there. 2 Peter 1, 19. I'm 1, 19 now. 1, 19. 2 Peter 1, 19. Got a lot of editing to do to the, the message up there. <laughs> and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well heed, as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, guys, in verse 16, says, this wasn't our idea. What we, what we wrote down, what we saw, we wrote down. We actually saw and heard Jesus. The second thing he says, verse 20, that the prophecy, um, uh, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke to as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So what did they do with this information that they saw in Christ and they heard from the Holy Spirit? Verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture. They wrote it down. Scripture means graphe. It, it literally means the writings. Peter says this wasn't our idea. Okay? We saw Jesus, we heard Him, and we wrote down with the help of the Holy Spirit what we saw and what we heard. This is huge, okay? Because we don't have the apostles right now. And we, we have Jesus' words recorded in Scripture. The foundation that the church is built on is the, the record 
of Scripture. Can we trust it? Yes. Why? Because the prophets they were, and the apostles, they heard from the Holy Spirit, and they were with Jesus Christ. If you, if you start to, to doubt Scripture, this gets shaky. Okay? If you start to write to doubt the Scripture that Paul and James, Peter, Luke recorded... All of a sudden, this, this gets pretty shaky. That's what the first church in, um, in Acts 2.42, it says they continued in the teaching of the apostles. This is a long tradition of following God's word. Now, we don't worship, we do not worship God's, this book. But through what we read, we get an idea, and we are directed towards who God is. This is the foundation, okay? And according to Luke, the foundation, Luke Kleinsaucer, the foundation is essential. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all... Let's just read it together instead of me telling it to you. Second Timothy 3:16. I'm pretty sure I got this one right. Okay. Second Timothy 3:16. Listen to this. Okay. We just read that Peter said that the, that the scripture that they wrote down was from the Holy Spirit and from Jesus Christ. Second Timothy 3:16, same word, all graphe, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That sounds familiar and is profitable for doctrine, for teaching for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely, complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, this foundation, it's built on Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, the, the prophets and apostles, and the, what we have is graphe, scripture. I love it. Not that I love these pages, but I love the story that comes that I read because I learn of Jesus Christ. Are there still apostles today? That's a good question. Because if there's still apostles today, like Jesus is talking about, then we've got continuing revelation. Um, go to Matthew 19.28. Okay, go to 27 for context. First Matthew, that's right, 19, the only Matthew, verse 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left, Jesus, we've left all to follow you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits in the throne of his, holy, of his glory, you have followed me, will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. How many thrones are there? Twelve. Actually, there's thirteen. One more time. 
when the Son of Man sits on the throne, that's one, there's 12 others, and there's 12 apostles. Judas fell away. I believe the the apostles picked Cephas. Is that Matthias? But church, um, we believe that God picked Paul, 12 apostles. And then if you look at Hebrews chapter 3, there's actually 13 apostles. It's Jesus, the apostle. Apostle means sent one, one who is sent. And Jesus is the sent one. Who'd sent him? His father sent him. And these are the other apostles that Jesus sent. Are there more apostles? If there are... If there are more apostles, then I need to take one of these thrones and contend for it. Because Jesus said there's 12 thrones. There's not 15 thrones. There's not 300 thrones. Jesus says right there, there's 12 thrones. And they're going to judge the 12 tribes. Now, people still use the word apostle loosely. But as Jesus used it when he said, in Ephesians 2, that the foundation is on the, the prophets and the apostles. There's 12. Let's keep talking here. From this bedrock and on this foundation, the church is founded. And if we stray from their words, we stray. If you, if you, are, if you are aiming for the moon and you are 2% off, you miss the moon by miles. So on top of this, what do we have? Let's go to 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. Okay, 1 Peter 5, verse 1. The elders who are among you, I exhort... Peter says, I am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but by being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. We're starting to see here, and you, can, you, you see in the book of Acts 2, where the apostles started setting up elders in the church. And the apostles were also elders in the church. The elders they set up were different, though. The apostles were on the move. You think about Paul, he was traveling, he was setting up churches. The elders were not in the move. The elders plural elders, they stayed at one church. The apostles were moving. That's one of the differences. Um, Elders always worked in groups. There was always multiples. They worked with the apostles. Did you notice also in there, some of yours says overseers in verse 2. What do others of yours say? Bishops. Yeah. So, there's a translation thing there that some of yours says bishops and some of yours says overseers. We're going to look at that in a second here, too. Um, what I want you to notice, though, is that these positions, they're not different men. It's one man 
and he has different roles, okay? The, listen to this. The elders who are among you, I exhort. I am a fellow elder. So he's exhorting the elders. In verse 2, he tells them what to do. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. And then he, he gives them another role. Serving as bishops or overseers. So this is one position, but it's got different sides to the coin. Okay? You have bishops, overseers. You have elders. What they do is shepherd. I want to look at um, first, what is a bishop or an overseer? The word, it's two words, episcopia, over and seer. It's one who looks over for the good of you. It's not a, a guy or it's not an overseer who is looking to try to catch you doing something wrong. It's one who looks over you for your good. That's what a bishop means. That's what an overseer is. It's one who's put in a position of leadership. Okay? Bishop kind of has one of those funny sounding like high church. It's a good thing. It's an overseer. He's one who has a position. He looks after you. This is a position of loving, caring, and watchful leadership in the church. The pri- what does he lead? In today's, in, I think a lot of times when we think of leadership in the church and you think of like church boards, you think of money or you think of building projects. But the primary leadership of a bishop or an overseer is people. This is sobering. In Hebrews 13, 17, it says that they, are watch, they, they watch over your souls. Man, that's a heavy responsibility. And as, as we teach this, I hope that some of you aspire someday to be in church leadership. And as we go over this, you're like, this is a goal that someday, if the Lord would will, that perhaps you would grow in maturity and grow in your love for the Lord and in your character. You also could watch over, over souls. Um, the next thing I want to look at is elder. If bishop is the position of leadership, elder is all about their character. Look at verse 3, the end of verse 3. Nor as being lords over them entrusted to you, this is how they are to lead, by being examples to the flock. How does an elder lead? He leads with his life. The elders in your church, should, you should look at their life and it speaks louder than their words. They're men of character. Um, I wrote, or I have written down a list that I want you to pay close attention to. It's from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus. Character is a huge thing to the Lord when he takes several times in, in the scripture to say the leaders of the church, they need to be men of character. And they're not to be men who we just hold up and watch. But if they're an example, what does that apply for you? It's you're to follow. The first one is above reproach. They're to be a man above reproach. And that word, this word hit me this week. It means no handle. If you have a a reputation for something, you're, you're a really good guy. A really good guy, 
but you slip up in one area. Let's say um, you get angry. Not much, but a little bit. You know what that is? That's a little handle in your character. A little bit of integrity that's, that's weakened. And guys, you know that Satan will use that handle. The word above reproach means there's no handles in your life where somebody can wrench and say, do you know what he did? Did, did you see him do that? You're a man of integrity. You're an open book. Nothing hidden. Respectable. It means you're looked up to. People actually look up to you and they say, you know, as I grow, I'd like to be like that. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And that's the goal. It's not to be like that man. It's to be like Christ. Um, they have a good reputation with unbelievers. A lot of times you can be one way in here and a whole other man or a woman outside the building. An elder needs to be a man of integrity. Same in here as out there. He should be a one-woman man. This has caused a lot of debate. Because that would disqualify all single people, right, from being an elder. But can you have the idea and the mentality of a one-woman man when you're single? You bet. Purity of thought, you're a one-woman man. Waiting for the person that you get married to, that's a one-woman man. You are, I am devoted to the wife that the Lord has given me. And if, you're, and if the Lord has not given you a wife, then you are waiting. That's a one-woman man. Even now, you can be working towards that. Um, he manages his family well. This is the testing ground. If an elder can't even manage his family in his household, why in the world would God entrust him with this? Rick, while I'm talking, could you get elders, bishops, and deacons and kind of set him up here? Thank you. He's hospitable. What does that mean? It means he loves people. He's not a new convert. He should be a man who is mature. And he's maturing. Because if he's a new convert, how will he give advice in the things of the Word? How will he tell people about Christ if he's still in those baby steps himself? He should be able to teach. And this is interesting. This is the only skill in the long list that God's given. The other are character. But able to teach is a skill. Why? Because if you are going to be a man of character and lead in the church, and you don't know God's word, and you can say, this is what God's word says. This, it's not, I don't act this way because I'm just a nice guy. It's because I want to show you this is what God has how he's led me to live. They need to be able to teach. And I think in our church, if you, if you look at the Sunday school classes, if you look at those who are in leadership, our elders are active. Man, I praise the Lord. As I, the men who's God placed in this church, that they are teaching elders. They're not just puppets who sit at a board table. They love the people of this church. And they're able by their character to demonstrate it and they're able to go to the Word and teach it. I love sitting around elders' meetings, and we'll, we'll be talking about finances or something, and somebody will say, 
yeah, but if you considered Luke and what he said, I'm like, wow. Like they're biblically thinking and teaching men. They're not addicted to wine. They don't have an idol or a, something that they got to have. You know what they got to have? Chief Cornerstone. They're not a brawler. Imagine a man who was leading the church, a leader in the church, and all he wanted to do was pick a fight. And it, it, it goes with the next one, is he's not contentious. He doesn't have the attitude of a fighter. How would you ever work with somebody and talk about the serious matters of the Lord and the Lord's people if all you want to do is... And, and I'll tell you, there are, there's disagreements. Tanner and I have disagreements. And if we were contentious and brawlers, there'd be problems in our little office. The Lord says you can't, you can't, you can't be that way. It needs to be gentle. It needs to be a kind man, abrasive, not abrasive. So when you talk to him, he just, whatever. He wants to listen to you. He's kind. He's free from the love of money. Money does not drive him. If you look at the end of our section there in 1 Peter, it says, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. And I think of Judas. There's a little phrase in the Gospels, and it says that Judas kept the purse. Judas loved money. An elder cannot be compulsed by money. He needs to be, his compulsion is because he loves the Lord and he loves the Lord's people. How are you doing? Are you working your way that way, men and women? He's temperate. That means he's unmovable. When he has, when, when the Lord's word says it, he believes it. And his conscience is steadfast on it. He's prudent. He understands and he applies the proper priorities in life. You know, we get so mixed up of what's really important. A man who is an elder, he understands biblically that this world is temporal. And someday God will come down and he will test this world by fire. Okay? And you think of all the things that you're involved in. And like, if I invest a lot of money into my car and God someday comes down and tests it with fire... I'm going to find out that it was a pretty poor investment. But this time that we are spending right now in God's Word, when the Lord comes and He tests this time by fire, it will stand because it's based on His Word. And an elder, he understands value. He loves what is good. He's just. He's not quick-tempered. And the last one is he's devout. And devout means holy. Pretty much that means his life is set apart. It's set apart for the Lord. An elder is not just any man. He's the right man. And his qualifications are character, not, not skills. And this is where we get things mixed up. Who's the best elder? Well, he's got a big business. We'll pick him. God says no. He needs to be a man who's got godly character. What we haven't mentioned yet is I haven't said the word pastor and that's what most of us use, is we use the word, who's the pastor of your church? I'd like you to look down at Second Peter 5 again, verse 2. That word shepherd is not a noun. It's a verb. I'm sorry. 
First Peter. Second Peter, believe it or not, is right there in my Bible, so I'm reading it. First Peter 5, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. That word shepherd, that's the word where we get our term pastor. Pastor is not a noun. It's a verb. It's what, pastor is what an elder and an overseer does. Okay? Um, so the, the elders, the bishops, and the overseers, it's a position of leading. This is a position of leadership. The position of elders, it's a position of feeding. This is leading and feeding God's people. What's that called? It's called pastoring. Where, is that, where do we get, our, get that from? You go a little bit further down in verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears. You see, an elder takes their cue from Jesus Christ, who is the chief shepherd. If you want to do more study into that, read the 23rd Psalm. That's a good, a good thing for an elder or a shepherd to read. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And look at all the things that the Lord does as the good shepherd. And not only that, they follow in the shadow of the chief shepherd, but they also must give an account to the chief shepherd. One of the things as we move, we move up, we have our foundation. We have our leaders and our feeders. Rick, could you get our servants and our saints? The deacons. Um, um, hold off on the saints. You can put them close by, though. Don't want to lose the saints. In Acts 6, verse 2, the deacons are first made mention of. What was going on is that the apostles and the elders were doing everything. They were teaching. They were feeding the poor. They were handing out money. They were planting churches, doing all these things. And it was too much. And that's what we do today, too. Few men do so many things. Few people do a lot of things. So they appointed what's called deacons. Stephen was one of the first deacons. The word deacon, diakonos, is servant. Just means servant. There's a lot to talk about with this, like men and women deacons, what they do in our church. The, um, the, the, the deacons are under the headship of the elders. And the elders have asked the deacons to take care of finances. They get, the, they get the precious job that if somebody needs money, do you know who takes care of that? The deacons do. Man, that's an awesome job. Just, this is the Lord's money, and I have been entrusted and instructed to give it to you. They take care of the budget. In our church, they, they make sure they oversee the different positions. And um, all of the equipment, that goes by all the deacons. What do the elders do? In the elders' meetings, mostly it's people. It's talking about the needs of the, of the flock. Let's keep talking here. Um, what, uh, the, the word deacon means servant. The deacon's qualification is the same place as the elder's qualification. It's in 1 Timothy 3. And there's pretty much one difference, and that is, is that the deacons are not instructed that they must be able to teach. 
but they must be men of integrity. All of those things that I read, the deacons need to be men of integrity too. And then the last thing is saints. We're going to close up with this. Um, A saint, if you remember in uh, Philippians 1, Paul wrote to the saints, which are in Philippi. A lot of times when we think of saints, what do we think of? Think of old, dead, long time ago people. But if you read in the context of, the, of the, the, um, these letters, it sounds like they're living. Because why would Paul be writing to dead people? He writes to the saints. So who are the saints? The word saints means holy ones, right? You think, really? Who are the holy ones? You know who the holy ones are? You. You say, nah, you'd better be. Because if you're not the holy ones, how in the world ever will you come before a holy God? Right? You see, Romans 8.1 says, there those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. Before the Lord, a Christian and is justified and he's righteous, he is made holy, not our holiness, Christ's holiness. These guys, they're saints. You know why? Because they're built off of Jesus. These guys, you know who they are? They're saints. You know why? Because they're built off of Jesus, and in him there's no condemnation. The deacons, they are all, this is, they're all holy ones. Why? Because they're built off of the chief cornerstone. What, are, what is the saints' response That's something that we're going to look at in our community groups this week. Is If you'll notice, this whole thing here is submission. And it goes down the line and it is ultimately submits to Christ. And we don't like to talk about submission. Let me read, I want to read a couple of them to you. Just to, how about uh, 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Likewise to you younger people. That could be you guys. Submit yourselves to your elders. Does that bother you? You see, in our, in our society, when, when, an elder, when somebody confronts somebody, you say, who are you to confront me and tell me that I'm doing the wrong thing? And people just leave the church. We have a hard time with submission. But if you look at the next, the next word, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. I think of marriage when I think of that, where it says, wives, submit to your husbands. But then it says, submit to one another. You see, there is, there, there is a um, leadership in the church, and it flows out of Jesus Christ and what he told the apostles. And the elders and the overseers are leading the church by God's word. And the deacons are serving, and they're, it's one, and they're serving each other. What I want to show you, in, in, in the community groups, we're going to look at, at these guys' responsibility down the chain a little bit. But I want to show you something. That Jesus Christ, this is the coolest thing about the church. Jesus has not 
offered and instructed you to do anything that he has not done perfectly. Hebrews 3 says that he is the apostle. Okay? He's not just one of the apostles. He is the apostle. Okay? So, so he covers this level. This level right here, the shepherds. 1 Peter 5 says that Jesus is the great shepherd. Jesus does this perfectly. He does this perfectly. Diakonos, the servant. If I remember, Jesus said in Matthew 20 that he did not come to be served, but to serve. He perfectly serves. So much so that he laid down his life. He is the Holy One. You see, all of these are holied. How are they holied? By the one who is holy. He's holy because he's holy. I'm holy because I'm in Christ. Isn't that amazing? That this whole thing fits together. You know what it's called? House of God. The church. Man, I think it's beautiful. I think we're going to close. Um, I'm going to pray and then you guys can come up. Lord, I thank, uh, I thank you for this evening. Just uh, being able to stumble through your scriptures, Lord. And being able to, to laugh, Lord. But, but amidst that, we have learned something about you. And Lord, I pray that um, what was said would, would bring you glory. Lord, help us to be thankful people that you have called us to be your house, which amazes me. That the God that in him, in you, we live and move and have our being, that in the lives of your people you dwell. And Lord, it is a place where we can grow up to maturity. And I know, Lord, that we won't be done maturing until we're dead. And at that point, we'll get a perfect body, Lord, that is reflective of a holy inner Andy. And then I'll be one complete man, Lord, that is right before you and once again able to bear your image, Lord. Lord, I'd ask that um, this evening as we we close in some songs that we would sing straight to you. And that, Lord, that this church would, would make m- much of our husband, Jesus Christ. And uh, that we'd bring you glory. Would you help us, Lord? Amen.